Okay, in session three, we want to pick up where we left off in session two and continue to discuss the Islamic eschatological paradigm. Again, you could just say the Islamic end-time theory, the idea that the Antichrist, his empire and his religion will come out of the Islamic world, out of the Middle East, as opposed to out of Europe, and as opposed to out of a revived Roman Empire, which, as I mentioned in the last session, has been the dominant position, not only in the past 30, 40 years, among that portion of the church that has really been studying and paying attention to and talking about biblical prophecy, but really throughout church history. This has been the Roman uh, end-time paradigm has been the predominant position. And we want to pick up where we left off and continue to discuss the Islamic eschatological paradigm. The first question that we would ask is why? Why are we discussing biblical prophecy? If we want to be missionaries and evangelists, why is this something that we should pay attention to? Matthew 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm the son of a fisherman. Uh, my father was a commercial fisherman, and we used to fish in the Atlantic. And so growing up, there was a, there was a saying that I learned, which was this. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky at morning, sailor's warning. And what that meant is if the clouds were orange and red as the sun was going down, that oftentimes meant that we would have nice weather the next day. And so even as a child, I knew how to look to the sky and decide and determine uh, if it was good news or not, if I was going to go fishing with my dad or not. And if it was a red sky, I would get excited. I'm going fishing with my dad tomorrow. It's going to be good weather. And if I got up in the morning and the sky was red and the clouds were orange, then I knew that we were going to have overcast weather. This is the very saying, essentially, that Jesus quotes. And then he chastises the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says, look, you know how to look to the sky. You know how to look to weather patterns and to understand what those signs mean. And he says, yet you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Jesus actually chastised people because they didn't understand biblical prophecy. Bibli understanding biblical prophecy is essential for disciples. Those that are given to the study of the word, he wants us to understand the signs as they relate to his coming, and again, the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah and the day of the Lord. He wants us as his disciples to be given to these things. However, I want to qualify this, and this is, this is very important. I like to break up the study of biblical eschatology into three categories, or three components. The first category, or the three, first component, is what I call the pre-day of the Lord eschatology. And that is essentially the various signs that precede the coming of the Messiah. And these are the events concerning a lot of the things that we will discuss in, in the sessions to come, uh, which nations will be involved in the kingdom of the Antichrist and the various battles and the peoples and the characters involved and the nature of the tribulation and the persecution that the, that the church will undergo, all of these things. And these things are important. Again, Jesus wanted us to understand these things, to pay attention to these things, to study these things. However, they are leading to and pointing to the second component of biblical eschatology, which is the day of the Lord. 
the return of the Messiah, the day of justice, the coming of the establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah on the earth. And so this is the point, is yes, Jesus wants us to study these things. He wants us to understand the times. However, we need to remember that the study of biblical eschatology, the study of the end times, must be day of the Lord centric. It must be Jesus centric. It must revolve around Jesus and his coming. If we lose that focus and we just get off into just pre day of the Lord eschatology, it's very easy to get off balance. And all of us have met the individual that that's all they talk about is the end times and maybe they've got a little bit of poor social skills mixed in there, but it can be very off-putting if someone was overly focused on just pre-day of the Lord end time studies and talking about these things all the time. It can be uh, oftentimes a distraction from the heart of the gospel, which again is the resurrection of the body, the day of the Lord. That is the heart of the gospel. It's the pole star of hope. It's the good news. It's the end result of the good news that we're proclaiming. And then the third component of biblical eschatology is post-day of the Lord eschatology, which is simply the discussion of the nature of the kingdom of the Messiah. It's the discussion of the nature of the kingdom and what the world would be like during the millennium. And that's a wonderful study. It's very uh, encouraging, and it's something that we rarely hear discussed in churches. Oftentimes, again, churches discuss and prepare people to go to heaven forever, an immaterial spiritual state, a floaty cloudy uh, place in, in the sky, a nebulous vague place where we go forever. That's often the gospel that's presented in churches. Uh, but rarely do churches discuss the nature of our real eternity, eternal destiny, which is the kingdom of the Messiah, when heaven and earth become one. And that is post-day of the Lord eschatology. So, pre-day of the Lord eschatology, right in the center, the day of the Lord, that always needs to be the emphasis, and then post-day of the Lord eschatology. The Lord wants us to study all of these things, but we need to remember the central focus. We need to remember that. We need to keep our eyes on that. Otherwise, it's very easy to get off balance. So the proper emphasis of the day of the Lord is always Jesus-centric. Now, the church today, in terms of just the discussion of the end times in general, the church is incredibly cynical. There is a, a major spirit of cynicism in many portions of the church today, which is very turned off to biblical prophecy. But I would even argue, as someone that, that teaches on the end times, that there are some, actually some very legitimate reasons. Some are not legitimate, some are, but I want to just throw some out. During the... Uh, 70s you had in the united states you had something called the jesus movement the jesus movement was really probably the most significant revival in recent american history where various hippies and all sorts of people were being swept into the church and one of the most significant factors in that revival was a book by hal Lindsay called the late great planet earth and so what happened was in 1948 Israel became a nation. And so then in 1967, they took Jerusalem. And so what happened is that believers began to look to the Bible and they recognized the fact that Israel being a nation, being uh, reborn as a nation, was a necessary uh, requirement for biblical prophecy to be fulfilled. And they realized that biblical prophecy was being fulfilled in their day, in the earth, on the ground, before their eyes, 
And then you had this very articulate author, Hal Lindsey, who came along, wrote a book about it, and that captured a lot of these hippies, these young Americans, and as a result of seeing biblical prophecy fulfilled, they were swept into the church. And so as missionaries, we need to remember the fact that the ability to articulate biblical prophecy in a biblically sound manner and relate it to issues taking place in the earth is perhaps the most powerful, one of the most powerful, yet neglected apologetics for the reliability of the Bible and the Christian faith and biblical faith. And yet it's one of the most neglected uh, means of apologetics. You know, we have all sorts of different apologetics that we use to try to point people to the truthfulness of the faith, but the ability to communicate to the unbelievers of the earth, to communicate the reality of these biblical prophecies, what they're saying, and then point to the fact that they're taking place in the earth is a powerful apologetic, and it's, it's a tool in the arsenal that missionaries should not ignore. This is something that we need to, to pay attention to. So, you had all these individuals being swept into the church. This was a wonderful thing. And so God bless uh, Hal Lindsey and all sorts of other various wonderful teachers that came out of that time frame. However, uh, what also came out of that time period was a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And that was probably the most infamous that, that a lot of folks will remember. But there was widely uh, a teaching that uh, Jesus would return in the 80s. And this was, this was very commonly believed. And as a result, there were many popular teachers. They might not have come right out and said it, but they strongly inferred it. As a result of that, there is a deep sense of cynicism that is still resident in many quarters of the church. And much of the Western church is very much turned off to the subject of biblical prophecy. And there's other reasons as well. There's what I call comic book or science fiction eschatology. And as, as an author and, and a teacher that focuses on these things, I, I get the emails, you know, uh, where, you know, somebody, they, they want to discuss the fact that the Antichrist, they have a theory, he's going to be a, um, a hybrid between alien DNA and DNA from the Shroud of Turin and, you know, just all of the just bizarre and outlandish ideas that are passed off as, um, you know, biblical study. And by and large, the church today, they don't want anything to do with, with a comic book faith. They want a faith that is grounded, that is giving to, given to issues that we talked about in the last session, justice issues, issues such as the poor of the earth, the oppressed of the earth, the issue of human trafficking. Uh, they want a grounded, realistic faith. They don't want a comic book faith. And they oftentimes associate the study of end times with these type of uh, goofy uh, ideas. And then also there's just this idea which is, is very prevalent, which is that biblical prophecy is simply too difficult to understand. And that is an absolute lie, but often it, it is the result of someone turning directly to the book of Revelation, trying to understand it, and, uh, and not understanding the wealth of information that the Bible speaks about with regard to the coming of the Messiah. So, you have all of these various reasons, and we could touch on others, but here's the sad part, here's the sad part, is because the church, by and large, many, many quadrants of the church, many portions of the church today have turned off and decided not to study the subject of end times. They've said, we're just going to focus on, you know, issues that are more relevant. We're going to discuss, 
you know, any number of other things. But that issue, we're going to kind of put it on the shelf and not focus on it. Here's, here's the problem, is that the baby that gets thrown out with the proverbial bathwater, or the proverbial baby that gets thrown out with the proverbial bathwater, is the day of the Lord. So as, as believers say, we're not going to talk about the end times. The issue that is sacrificed, the issue that is then not discussed, is the day of the Lord. And yet, as we've already discussed, the day of the Lord is the central heart of the Gospel. It is the pinnacle of hope. The pinnacle of biblical hope. The resurrection of the body and the establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah. And yet, that is the issue that is not being talked about because the church has embraced a cynical attitude with regard to the end times. We cannot allow that cynicism to... Uh, to rob us of this discussion of the day of the Lord because of its, it's beautiful. We don't, want, we don't want our cynicism to rob us of the beauty of this subject. So, uh, that's one reason why we need to discuss the subject of the end times. It's also a wonderful opportunity to use as a tool to dialogue with Muslims. There is an explosion throughout the Islamic world of interest in the subject of end times. Uh, Ten years ago when I started studying uh, Islamic eschatology, what Muslims believe with regard to the end times, in English there were uh, less than ten books that I could find. Today I have nearly fifty. There's been an explosion of publications throughout the Islamic world on these subjects, and Muslims as well as just you know, common people on the street are interested and with the various events that are taking place in the earth, even more so. And so this is a wonderful tool, again, in our arsenal to open up dialogue and discussion is the subject of the end times. There's another issue as well that I want to um, touch on uh, before we move on, which is this, you know, as, as those, again, that are seeking to be evangelists or missionaries to the Islamic world, to the Islamic community, why do we need to pay attention? Why do we need to get this issue of the Islamic end-time paradigm? Why? There's a biblical principle. There's a couple biblical principles, actually. And it's this. Whenever the Lord uses a people to chastise uh, His people, Israel, whenever He used, for instance, the Babylonians or the Assyrians, whenever He uses a people to chastise or judge another people, whenever He uses a people as His rod of chastisement, when He is done chastising His people, He takes that rod and He breaks it over His knee. In other words, the Lord is about to use in the years to come, He's about to use the Islamic world as His rod of judgment against the unbelieving world He's about to use them as his rod of chastisement against his people Israel, as well as the church. And, and when he's done using uh, the Islamic world, he will break that rod over his knee, and he will judge the world of Islam. And then there's another principle. Whenever the Lord judges a people, before he does that, he calls out a remnant. And today, throughout the Islamic world, we are seeing... A significant revival. We are seeing more Muslims come to faith now than at any other time in history. Why? Because the principle that I just discussed. The Lord is about to judge Islam in the, in the generation ahead. That judgment is coming. We discussed some of the passages in the context of the return of the Messiah where he is seen to be judging the Islamic world. And beforehand, right now, he is calling out the remnant. This 1.5, 1.6 billion people throughout the earth, 
many of them five times a day, bowing down to the God that they don't ultimately know and saying, Oh Allah, guide me to the straight path. And so right now, the Lord is responding to this cry, this cry to the God that they don't know. And for many, He is revealing Himself. We want to be part of that. We want to be aware of what the Lord is doing. We want to be in tuned with His timeline, with His prophetic timeline, what He is doing in the earth. And we want to give ourselves to winning more from among that remnant. We want to be part of that harvest that's taking place throughout the Islamic world. So, with all of this said, we want to now uh, turn, we're going to now turn to uh, Islam in the book of Daniel. So whenever I am articulating or discussing the Islamic eschatological paradigm with, uh, with individuals, usually the first subject that always comes up is two passages. They'll say, what about Daniel 2? What about Daniel 9? And so we're going to take some time to look at those and some other passages in the book of Daniel. And it's essential that we do this because with regard to the Islamic eschatological paradigm, the book of Daniel is really probably the most significant book. Now, the primary focus, literally, of the entire book of Daniel is the final conflict between the people of God, the people of God, and the Antichrist empire. The entire book, every chapter is oozing with references with regard to the geography of the Antichrist. It's speaking of the theology of the Antichrist. There's actually a section in the book of Daniel which lays out for the first time in very clear terms the theology, the theological belief system of the Antichrist. It discusses the nature of the persecution that is coming toward uh, God's people, toward the Jewish people as well as those that carry the, the name of Jesus and have the, bear the testimony of Christ. It speaks of all of these different things, and it's a consistent theme throughout the book of Daniel. It's this, it's this issue of the, the Antichrist, the Antichrist empire. And as I said, whenever uh, you know, we begin to articulate the subject, the, the two passages that are most often referenced are Daniel's statue, that's Nebuchadnezzar's uh, statue, Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 2 discusses this, it was Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and then oftentimes Daniel 7, which is really a chapter which piggybacks off of Daniel 2, and that is the chapter which deals with Daniel's vision of four beasts. So these are really both the same story being told using different symbolism but telling the same story, just using different symbols. In Daniel 2, it's a metallic statue. In Daniel 7, it's four beasts. So we're going to touch on these things. And then Daniel 9, Daniel 9.26, this one, uh, one verse that has in it the phrase, the people of the prince to come. And we're going to discuss that in the next session. And then oftentimes people will point to Revelation 17, which mentions the city on seven hills. So those are the four key passages. We're not going to really get into Revelation 17. Most scholars today have rejected the idea that uh, Revelation 17 is speaking of Europe. Um, but there are still some that you know haven't really caught up with modern scholarship. And we'll touch on those things a bit, but we're not going to spend a whole session. But we are going to go ahead and begin with Daniel 2. And really uh, address what is one of the two most significant pillars of the European or Roman end time paradigm. And we need to look at this passage because it's crucial. So Daniel 2 verses 31 through 35. Now, 
Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He sees this great statue. He's very disturbed by it. He calls on all of his men and all of his, his uh, magi to try to tell him what the dream was. None of them could do it. And then someone makes mention of Daniel, this Hebrew, who's very good at interpreting dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls for Daniel. Daniel actually uh, in, he goes to sleep, and the Lord reveals to him what the dream was. And so here we find ourselves, Daniel is now explaining to King Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was, and not only what his dream was, but what it means. So beginning with verse 31, Daniel says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone, now there's a stone, was cut out without human hands, without hands, it was just supernaturally cut out, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it crushed them. Then the iron the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, were crushed all at the same time, and they became like chafe from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the traditional view, the traditional view, again, the European-centric view or the Roman-centric view holds this is, again, the predominant position down through history, that the dream is portraying four empires. And in succession, the empires were this. The head of gold is the Babylonian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire is the uh, chest and arms of silver. Then the belly and thighs of bronze is the Alexandrian uh, Grecian Empire. And then the legs of iron being the Roman Empire. That's the traditional uh, predominant position down through history. Now, what I want to do is walk through some of the problems, some of the glaring problems with uh, that position. And so, number one, the Roman view, problem number one, is this. The Babylonian through Roman secession is only true through the Western view of history. It is only true through the Western lens of history in terms of how Westerners interpret history. You see, the Roman identity of the fourth kingdom fails to take into consideration the Babylonian centricity, the Babylon context uh, of the passage, the Babylon-centric context of the passage. So, again, in the West, we often trace our history through the Roman Empire. We've received so much from the Roman Empire in architecture and law and so many other different ways. And so it's hard for Westerners to even... Consider the idea that perhaps the Bible is not coming at history from our perspective. You know, if you're in China, the Roman Empire is not the biggest uh, issue in, in terms of history. There were other very relevant kingdoms and so forth in the earth that impacted Chinese perhaps far more than the Roman Empire. And so again, we need to take into consideration the very context of the passage. So here's the question. What is this, this whole passage about? What, what is it? It is a dream that was given to a very specific individual. It is a dream that was given to Nebuchadnezzar, who was what? 
He was the king of ancient Mesopotamia, the king or the emperor over Babylon. He ruled in the region today that is modern-day Iraq, on, in between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. And so in Daniel 2, 37 through 40, we are told what the context of the dream is. Daniel says, you, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And then after you shall arise another kingdom, and then another, a third kingdom. And then the fourth shall be as strong as iron. And so the point is, it is talking about the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over, and then three kingdoms that would follow his, that would rule in his place, that would come after him and rule in his place in the geographic context of Babylon. So what I've done in my study is I've laid out a map of the Middle East and I've taken the Babylonian Empire, again an empire that stretched from modern-day Israel really in a, in a, a northern arc up through Syria and Asia Minor through modern-day Armenia coming down into the modern-day nation of Iraq. That was the ancient Babylonian Empire. And then really putting a, 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 a circle around several hundred miles around the geographic context of the dream as it was given in the ancient city of Babylon. And I'm calling that ground zero. That's ground zero. That's the geographic context of the dream. So now here's, here's what we need to do is we need to actually get out the maps, look at the maps and say uh, which empires fulfilled the criteria that was laid out in the Bible. And so then we look at the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire came after the Babylonian Empire. We read about it in the book of Daniel. And it extended all the way from European Macedonia and swept all the way across the Middle East well into India including down into uh, Egypt and northern Africa, extending slightly down toward Arabia. It was a massive empire. And when we look at that, that circle that we've laid down, and we've superimposed on the map that, that is several hundred miles around the, the geographic context of Babylon, we see that the Persian Empire absolutely came after Nebuchadnezzar, and it dominated and it ruled that entire region. It completely swept over it like a flood. I mean, it filled the whole, the whole region. Then we have the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire, the Alexandrian Greek Empire, again, Alexander swept out of Macedonia and had an empire which was very similar, although slightly smaller than the Medo-Persian Empire, but nevertheless, a massive empire. And once more, the Greek Empire absolutely came and ruled after Babylon. It ruled over that region. Then if we look at a map of the Roman Empire, at the time of its greatest extent, all of a sudden, everything shifts to the west. Everything shifts to the west. And so, you know, instead of ruling over this, this several hundred mile region extending out from the epicenter of Babylon, the Roman Empire really straddles the western edge of that. And the Roman Empire's greatest eastern extent really just sort of plays along the borders of ground zero, this, this, this whole region that we've laid out. And so we have to ask ourselves, did the Roman Empire come to fulfill the biblical criteria? Did it rule over? Did it come after Babylon? And the answer is, it really didn't. Or the answer is, it did a little bit. It conquered some of the territories. The, the Roman Empire's greatest eastern expanse did take some of the uh, western edges of Babylon, as well as some of the western regions that were conquered by Medo-Persia 
uh, in Greece, but by and large, the Roman Empire was significantly much more Western than any of the three previous empires. However, when we consider the only other empire that history has given us, the Islamic Empire, I'm calling it the Islamic Empire, it's essentially the various uh, caliphates, the Rashidun all the way up to the Ottoman. Then we look at a map of the regions that the Islamic Empire has conquered, and we say, did the Islamic Empire, was it the next empire that came after Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece that conquered that entire region? And the answer, unlike the Roman Empire, is absolutely, completely, 100%, unquestionably yes. The Islamic Empire completely dominated that entire region. So Roman view problem number two, and this is really piggybacking off of uh, the previous point, and this is speaking of the nature of its rise. You see, the Bible never mentions by name the fourth empire. It just calls it the fourth empire. It mentions the other two empires by name. It mentions Medo-Persia, and it mentions the uh, Grecian empire. It never mentions by name the fourth empire. It is simply a fourth empire, and here's the description that we're given in Daniel 2.40. It says, The fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. This is the critical piece of, uh, this is the critical criterion that the Bible lays out, and we need to pay attention to it. The fourth kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So what are all the others? The others are Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And so here the Bible lays down this, this uh, rule that we, as we're trying to consider which empire is, is a candidate, whether the Roman or the Islamic, that fulfills the biblical criteria, which empire crushed and conquered all the others. And again, the answer, if we look at the maps, is that the Roman Empire partially, a little bit, the Islamic Empire absolutely, wholeheartedly. And if we're to just simply take a map and lay down the Roman Empire and say, did the Roman Empire conquer the modern-day region of Iraq? The answer is no. It skirted the edges. Now, in all fairness, I will point out the fact that in A.D. 116, under Emperor Trajan, the Roman Empire did extend down and establish a garrison in the ancient ruin of Babylon for a period of two weeks, less than a month. The Roman Empire came down into that ancient area of Babylon for two weeks, and then Emperor Trajan died, and they withdrew. Literally, this, this empire that existed for you know, m- you know, millennia, for a two-week period, it came down to Babylon, and that is the only time that the Roman Empire extended down into that region. And then if we say, what about, what about Iran? The, you know, essentially the heart of the Persian Empire. Did the Roman Empire ever crush the region of Iran? And the answer is no, not even close. It barely even touched the most uh, northwestern edge of Iran, but by and large, the Roman Empire was several hundred miles particularly from the capitals of the Persian Empire, Susa, Persopolis, and Ecbatana. The Roman Empire was very much a Western uh, empire. It was much more European-oriented. On the other hand, did the Islamic Empire crush Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece? And again, if we look at a map, we look at history, it is undeniable. The answer is yes, wholeheartedly, 
100%. The Islamic Empire crushed all the others. The Roman Empire does not meet the geographic biblical criterion on this point of uh, Daniel 2 verse 40. The Islamic Empire does completely. Roman view problem number three is the nature of its demise. The nature of the demise of the fourth kingdom. So now we looked at the nature of its rise. Now we're looking at the nature of its demise. Daniel 2, 34 and 35. Daniel says, while you were watching, a rock was cut out. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of Messiah. But not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time. And they became like chaff on the summer threshing floor in the summer. The wind blew them away, not leaving a trace. So once again, we ask the question, if the Roman Empire today were completely revived, as we are often told again in many of the popular prophecy circles that this Roman Empire will be revived, if it were revived today to the to the period of its greatest extent, and the kingdom of Messiah, the rock, cut out not without human hands, not with human hands, struck the Roman Empire and destroyed it, would Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece also be destroyed by virtue of the destruction of that empire at the same time? And the answer is no. Once again, a little bit, some of them would be destroyed. Some of them would, but a large percentage of them would be completely untouched. Once again, on the other hand, if the Islamic empire were revived, it were, if it were revived, if the Islamic caliphate, if the, if the Islamic caliphate at the time of its greatest extent were revived and the kingdom of Messiah came and destroyed that kingdom, would Babylon, Medo-Persia, and the Grecian empires be destroyed at the same time? And the answer is yes, absolutely, completely. Once again, with regard to its rise and its demise, the Islamic Empire fulfills the biblical criteria. The Roman Empire does not. When we look at a map, we look at a map of the world. We look at the regions that Islam has come to conquer. And then we look at the land of Israel. Again, the central geographic focus of all biblical prophecy. We see that hundreds, even thousands of miles in every direction, Islam has come to fill those regions we ask ourselves, how is it that from a prophetic perspective we have missed the relevance of Islam? And, and you look at a map and you say, what is more relevant to the nation of Israel today? Those Islamic nations that surround Israel on every side or Europe. Which one, which of those two entities is more relevant? And I would say that Islam is without question. Roman view problem number four and this is um, kind of an interesting point. It's a little bit goofy, but it's, it's worthwhile making. Is this. The Western Roman Empire, whose capital uh, was in Rome, it was founded in 27 BC. It collapsed in AD 476, roughly 500 years later. The Eastern Roman Empire, on the other hand, whose capital was in Constantinople, it was founded in AD 330. So about 140 years before the Western Roman Empire collapsed. And then the Eastern Roman Empire lived on until 1453 when Mehmet the Conqueror came and took Constantinople and turned it into Istanbul. And so the point is, is that if, as many people contend, this statue, which has these legs of iron, 
A lot of people will say these legs of iron, one represents the Eastern Roman Empire, the other one represents the Western. If that's the case, then the statue would have had to have been standing on one leg for well over a thousand years. And, you know, it really doesn't make sense. It really doesn't work with the history of the Roman Empire. They didn't, there were not an eastern and a western leg that existed at the same time as the statue portrays. Rather, they existed largely in two completely different uh, periods. The Roman view problem number five is the failure of the Roman Empire to crush and I want to zero in on this specific word, crush, because this is one of the primary descriptions of the Fourth Empire. It says it will crush all the others over and over. It says, like iron that crushes and breaks, this empire, the Fourth Empire, will crush, crush. What does that word mean? A lot of commentators will say that it clearly points to the Roman Empire and it speaks of military brutality. It speaks of the fact that when there was an uprising in the Roman Empire, it was the Roman military that would crush these uprisings. I would argue that the word there, crush, is much more than mere military brutality. I would argue that it also speaks of conquering borders, that's ge geographically, but it also speaks of conquering culturally and crushing religiously and linguistically that it's not mere borders and it's not mere military might. That when it speaks of crushing all the others, it's speaking of so something much broader than mere borders. When we consider this uh, potential uh, standard and we look at the Roman Empire, we say, did the Roman Empire crush other cultures? When it, when it conquered regions, did it crush them culturally, linguistically, and religiously? And the answer is, really, it didn't. For an ancient empire, the Roman Empire was fairly a very tolerant empire. When the Roman Empire conquered a region, it added, rather than crushing, it added infrastructure. It added law. It added order and roads. And most often, it allowed its conquered subjects to maintain their languages, their religion, and their culture, so long as they tipped the hat to Caesar and they paid their taxes by and large, they were allowed to do that. Certainly, uh, much of the Roman Empire was actually overwhelmed by Greek culture. And, and you know, obviously, when we look at the Greek gods versus the Roman gods, they're just recycled. They have different names, but they're the same gods. The Roman Empire didn't come and, and wipe out Greek culture. Largely, much of the Greek culture came to overwhelm the Roman Empire. And thus, in the first century, in the land of uh, Israel, what did they speak? Did they speak Latin? Well, largely, they spoke Greek. That was under the Roman Empire. During uh, the first century, uh, Herod's temple, perfect example, it prospered. And the Jewish uh, you know, religion was practiced there in Jerusalem. And, the, and the, Romans, the, the Romans loved to allow them to do that. It was a monument, a testament to their tolerance and to the greatness of their kingdom. Again, so long as they acknowledged Caesar and paid their taxes... The Romans often allowed their conquered peoples to maintain their religious practices, their languages, and their cultures. On the other hand, what about the Islamic world? What are some examples that we could look at? And the fact of the matter is, is we, could, we could spend five sessions discussing different uh, examples. Let's just take something like in recent uh, history in Afghanistan. You had the uh, Bamiya Baptist, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> The Bamiya Buddhist statues, these massive statues of Buddha carved uh, into the mountains. Did the uh, 
Taliban turn these into a national uh, museum or a tourist attraction? No. They got out the dynamite and they blew them up. They erased previous uh, religious cultures. They erased any evidence of their previous existence. And this is what Islam has done from its very inception. After it burst forth out of Arabia, it has been in many, many ways an Arab supremacist force in the earth. And it has exported a very specific Arab religion and an Arab language into most of the Islamic world. And as it does that, it erases, it crushes, and it destroys the cultures, the languages, and the religions of those peoples that it comes to conquer. We have examples in the city of London where uh, you know, street names that were once Christian names such as St. Mary's or Trinity are turned into names such as Abu Ali or you know, Muhammad Ali and these sorts of things. And you have these uh, minority groups maybe in... Um, uh, you know, 20% or something, but they come to take over the counselors and then they vote. And, you know, we, we could go on with examples of this sort. Just in London alone, uh, we, could, we could cite hundreds of examples. We could look at the ancient uh, church, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, once the largest church in the world. Just a beautiful, uh, beautiful church and a testament to the ancient uh, Byzantine Christian architecture. And when Mehmet the Conqueror came in and took uh, Constantinople, what happened to the church? It was turned into a mosque. They built the minarets. They ripped the cross off the top. They put up the crescent moon. And on the inside, over some of the Christian mosaics, they put up the name of Allah and Muhammad and Ali. And these, Arab, these various plaques with Arabic script are placed everywhere. And there are some of the Christian elements which were allowed because they were part of Islam, such as uh, mosaics of Mary, because Muslims believe that Mary was the mother of, uh, of Jesus, or Isa, as they call him. But it was turned into a mosque, and of course today it's a museum. But this pattern is, is consistent throughout Islamic history. When they conquer a region, they turn the churches into mosques, they take the Christian names or the former symbols, and they really focus on the symbols and they destroy them, they rip them off, they cover them up, and they replace them with Arabic and Islamic symbols and Islamic culture. This is the nature of Islam from the very beginning. It has been a crushing, and it has been an erasing force. I uh, was watching a video on YouTube out of uh, Kosovo. Of course, under George Bush, uh, America stood by and allowed the region of Kosovo, which was the ancient capital of Serbia, this uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox nation, and they gave that to greater Albania. Now, Albania is largely considered to be a very moderate uh, Muslim. Uh, the, the Muslim population in Albania is very uh, so-called very moderate. But you can watch the videos where uh, you know, they gather around these beautiful ancient Eastern churches and just like locusts, light them on fire and destroy them. And, uh, you know, the first thing that they go for is they climb up on the roof and they grab the crosses and they rip the crosses off and they, they take those symbols because they understand the power of symbolism. And then you can go across the country, hundreds of monasteries, beautiful little picturesque monasteries just in the past several years that have been decimated by the very moderate uh, Albanian Muslim population. There are monks, Eastern Orthodox monks, that have to be escorted around their uh, ancient capital 
uh, with armored cars and with military. This is the history of Islam. This is the pattern that is as old as Islam throughout northern Africa today. What language do they speak? They speak Arabic. Is that their native language or is that imported? No, that was imported. In Iraq today, what do they speak? They speak Arabic. This is, this is the nature of Islam. It is in many, many ways an Arab supremacist force. And, you know, we could go on about Sudan and the mistreatment of the indigenous uh, African Muslims by the Arab Muslims in Sudan or Mauritania or any number of places and the silence of the Islamic world on these issues. And, and you know, clearly the Islamic world has an Arab preference with regard to language, ethnicity, and so many other ways. Again, with regard to the issue of crushing Islam fulfills the biblical criteria as a crushing entity, whereas the Roman Empire really doesn't at all. Additional criteria to consider. There are two uh, more what I call hints. The first one is that the kingdom will be mixed, and the second one is that the kingdom will be divided. The kingdom will be mixed. This is Daniel 2, verses 43. And this is one of those very uh, cryptic, phrases in the Aramaic. Daniel 2 was, uh, we have in the text are in Aramaic. This is one of those very cryptic phrases. Interpreters have had a difficult time uh, translating this. And it says, just as you saw, again, speaking of the feet of iron and clay uh, that extend out of the iron legs, Daniel says, just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Again, it's a difficult uh, verse to understand what exactly is it saying. What's so interesting and what uh, most people that I've uh, discussed this with are unaware of the fact is that in Aramaic, in ancient uh, Middle Eastern uh, culture, the Arab peoples were understood to be the mixed ones. And so... You go back to the story of Ishmael and Esau, and they were commanded not to intermarry with the peoples of the east. Uh, the Esau was commanded not to intermarry with the Ishmaelites and the, peace, the eastern peoples and the Egyptians and so forth, but they did so anyway. And later you had what was called the Arabs. And the word for mixed in Aramaic, which is the original language of this verse, is Arab. So when you, when you look at the verse... It's actually used three times. An alternative translation, if we were reading this in the original language, it would be something along this line. Just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be Arabized. They will be a mixed people. They will be a mixture. And they will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In other words, it will be an Arab kingdom. I mean, specifically, it says it will be a mixed kingdom. Now, I understand that when I introduce this to, to people, oftentimes they say, well, that sounds a little questionable. It sounds kind of Bible codish. You know, it's sort of fringy theology that I'm not sure I want to uh, ascribe to. But the fact of the matter is, is, again, if we were to read this in the original language, if we were to read it in Aramaic, it would have stood right out at us. It will be an Arab kingdom. And in fact, Daniel, in the very same book, Daniel... Chapter 5, verses 25 through 28, did this very thing. He, he looked at a play of words and he used it to point to the ethnicity 
of the kingdom that was about to succeed the Babylonian Empire. And this is the famous story of the handwriting on the wall, Mini Mini Tekel Perez. Daniel looked at these, these, these uh, inscriptions on the wall, and he says to Belteshazzar, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And then he sees the word Perez, Perez, which means divided. And then from that, he drives the word Paras, which means Persians. And then he says this, he says, your kingdom is divided and it's given to the Medes and the Paras, the Persians. So Daniel himself uh, looks at this inscription on the wall. He uses a Semitic, an ancient Semitic play on words, and he points to the ethnicity, the, the, the ethnic people that are about to conquer the Babylonian Empire. And I don't think it's really that uh, out there to suggest the idea that perhaps in this phrase where it speaks of the kingdom, the fourth and final kingdom being a mixed kingdom, I don't think it's really that far out there to suggest that perhaps that was a very purposeful uh, decision on the Lord's part to say that the fourth kingdom would be an Arab kingdom. Now I want to look at Daniel 2 verse 41, again speaking of the divided kingdom. Daniel said this, he said that in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be, the fourth kingdom, will be a divided kingdom. So again, another criterion. Daniel lays down, he says, if you're trying to figure out which kingdom is the kingdom that we're talking about, it will be, this will be a primary factor, it will be a divided kingdom. So, what about the Roman Empire? People say, oh, clearly this describes the Roman Empire. They, they were divided. And I say, yes, they experienced periods of division. But it is not an overriding description of the Roman Empire. It's only something that describes a very short period of its existence. However, when we look at the Islamic world, when we look at the Islamic Empire, then we have the story of the Sunni-Shia division. Shortly after Muhammad died, there was the dispute that broke out between his followers as to who would be the, uh, the rightful successors to Muhammad. And so those that believed that it should go to his friends, the Sahaba, his companions, they became known as the Sunnis. And they're the 85 to 90% majority sect. And then those that believed that it should go to his family, that it should go to, the, uh, to Ali and to Muhammad's physical descendants, they became known as the party of Ali, the Shi Ali, the Shia. That's the 10 to 15 uh, minority sect. And so from the very inception of this Islamic empire, the kingdom has been divided. It has been divided from the beginning. It has been divided right up into this very day. And in the past decade with the American uh, occupation, invasion and occupation of Iraq, what did we see for years? We saw what the news would often call sectarian violence. We would see Sunnis blowing up Shia mosques, Shia blowing up Sunni mosques. This went on and on and on. The kingdom has been divided. The kingdom is divided. And it's interesting to take note of the fact that at the very end, the armies of the Antichrist in the land actually begin to fight against each other and kill each other. They're willing to lay down their differences for a time for the sake of their mutual hatred of the Jews. But even in the land we see that they're killing each other. Ezekiel 38, verse 21. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God, 
every man's sword will be against his brother. Speaking of the armies of the Antichrist in the land, every man's sword will be against his brother. Zechariah 14, verse 13. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another, and they will attack each other. The uh, verse uh, 21 in Ezekiel 38, it's actually very reminiscent of the prophecy in Genesis 21 that speaks of Ishmael. And it says that uh, it's speaking of Ishmael, the wild donkey of a man. And it says that, you know, his foot will always be against his brothers. Every man's sword will be against his brother. So in conclusion, I would, uh, I would suggest that the fourth kingdom is the Islamic Caliphate, the Islamic Empire. So if we're to look at uh, a picture of this metallic statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, rather than the Babylonian through Roman secession, I would suggest that what we have presented to us is Babylon, the head of gold, Medo-Persia, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze being the Alexandrian Greek Empire, and then the legs of iron is the Islamic Caliphate, the only entity that fulfills all of the biblical criteria to a T, and then the feet of iron mixed with clay is the revived caliphate. We are seeing that caliphate slowly being revived right now in the Middle East, the unification of the Islamic world, uh, the turmoil in the Middle East will result eventually in the reestablishment of an Islamic caliphate. Whether they'll call it by the, that term or not, we don't know. And then we are told that the kingdom of the Messiah will come as a rock, strike that statue, strike that empire, and all of the others, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, will all be destroyed at the same time. Amen.